Welcome to Bickering Peaks with Aiden and Lindsay. You're Lindsay. You're Aiden. And this is Bickering Peaks. Once again. Yes, you have returned. Blasting you in the ear earwaves. <laughs> in the ear holes? Yeah. Let's say that. That sounds better. No, no, it doesn't. But that's what we're doing. We're coming into your ear holes this week uh, to talk about Storyville, yeah. uh, the 1992 Mark Frost mega project, Yes, I guess. It's the most Mark Frost uh, film project to date. Uh, it is, he wrote, directed, and start. no, he didn't start. He didn't start it, no, no. But, but he uh, was heavily, heavily involved in this project and yeah. uh, famously worked on it um, during the production of Twin Peaks. Yeah. Um, this was one of those those films that that or one of the projects, I guess, that people say contributed to the downfall of Twin Peaks. Yeah. Unfairly, I think, because yeah. he was. He, I mean, Mark Frost was involved with this project and attached to it as as early as 1986. Yeah. Um. So he was he was involved with it before Twin Peaks was even started. Yeah. And the other the other project, obviously, that that gets um, mentioned in that breath is right. Wild at heart. Wild at heart, yeah. which didn't have anything to do with it. Like yeah. the, these are two films that are completely separate from the Twin Peaks mythos, but everybody looks to them as as when they're pointing fingers and trying mm-hmm. to lay blame for what happened in the second season of Twin <laughs> Peaks. And yeah. it's just totally unfair. Um having said that, the the film Storyville is um I'm not it, it okay, so it's not Twin Peaks. Let's just yeah. put it that way. Yeah. It's it's easy, I think, to heap scorn on a film that isn't going to reach the same level of critical acclaim. Yeah. Which this film doesn't. No. And it, for reasons we'll get into, I think. But Yeah. But um, it's it's not a it's not a art house no. cinema piece at all. It's no. it falls very much in Mark Frost's other veins as a writer. Uh, the previous films of his that we watched, um, uh, what were they called again? I can't even remember now. Um, the oh, Believers was the, the Believers, one with yeah. Mar- uh, Martin, Martin Sheen. Sheen. I was going to say Martin Freeman. I'm like, nope, <laughs> no, wrong, no. wrong Martin. No, he'd be about eight. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So the Martin Sheen Project yeah. and uh, the other one, which I can't remember the name of, but it was the TV film right. uh, that was very similar. It had similar kind of themes and, and uh, uh, setting and so Well, forth. and that was the interesting thing too, is, is not knowing anything about this film. I didn't even know James Spader was in it. So yeah, those yeah of we you started who, watching. <laughs> those of you who are friends with me on Facebook witnessed my my complete and utter breakdown the other night when I when we watched this, and I was like, "Holy shit, James Spader's in this film! <laughs> He's the star. He's the, He's star, the star of the, of the film. film." I had no idea, so I was quite I was quite pleased. I really like James Spader, so and yeah. he he does a great job in this film. I I will say, but um, yeah, knowing nothing about this, we we walk into the into the. Uh, watching, watching it. it yes we didn't walk anywhere we <laughs> sat down to watch yeah and uh and it was really interesting because it's set in new orleans which is great because it fits so well with two other projects sort of two sort other of projects yeah that mark frost has done in the past which are um the tv movie the tv which movie which is the oh. with the voodoo yes scared straight scared straight and Lindsay, your brain is amazing thank you very much <laughs> and um and then the uh, American Chronicles episode, which was the, oh, the first one, which was yeah. all about it was specifically about Mardi Gras, but it yeah. was about it was it was uh, New Orleans. Yeah, and so interesting that he keeps returning to this, yeah, um, this this place, yeah. which has a lot of 
mystical meaning, I think. Yeah. Um, but we're getting way off track yes. here. Let's, let's um, get started with the basics. Yes. Uh, some production history. Uh, as you said, Mark Frost did start on this project many years earlier, probably as he was writing One Slime Bubble as well. Sounds like, yeah. Um, sounds like it was around the same time. Uh, and I don't know when he was attached as director. We couldn't find that out. Um, but it was released in 1992. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't gross particularly well at the box office. No. I had an opening weekend of 420000 or something yeah. like that. Uh, that. So it wasn't, you know, it was no box office smash. Critically, it was okay received i think i think it it has a rated fresh rating on rotten tomatoes but it's only got like 60 percent. yeah so i mean you know in taking in all the critical um criticism the critical criticisms critical criticisms Mm -hmm, all those of the various um news outlets of the time it didn't fare that well but not terribly either no exactly and and i think uh that kind of matches up with my understanding of it it's not a great film but it's uh it's it's enjoyable still there's still some great moments it was based on as in said a novel um, i didn't say that but thank you oh you did i thought no, you did i, I thought I, you said it was i forgot to mention oh that. okay well anyway aiden was thinking it <laughs> this is based on a novel that was written in 1982 mm-hmm. um set in australia which was interesting to us that um it's the big little eyes of our time because it's been moved from <laughs> yes. australia to america um, but it's picked of a, their time. Yes, the yes, sorry, yeah, their of their time. Thank you. It so yeah, the the book was written in eighty two and optioned in eighty six, and Mark Frost was attached to it from that point on. Mm. Um, so fairly early in in that. So I would imagine that it, as a director, it probably came up during his time on Twin Peaks that mm-hmm. um, not only was he going to write it, he was going to direct it as well. Uh, but I and I haven't read the book. The book is called Juryman, and it. Being set in Australia and then moving it to the bayou Mm -hmm. is an interesting choice. And I would like to, I think just as a personal project, I'd like to track down the book and see how they deal with it. Because there are certain certain elements of, you know, questions of reparation and racist elements that Mm -hmm. come into play along, you know, the uh, Jim Crow lines that fit very well. In the film, I want to see how that played out in the novel, and if there yeah, was some kind of that element, you know, an, uh, yeah. Aboriginal culture coming into play, or or how that was that was divvied up in that respect, mm-hmm. um, because it does feel like if there were choices made on the part of Mark Frost as the as the writer and uh, the adapter of the the novel, mm-hmm. um, certainly that those choices reflect his beliefs about what the South offers in terms of stories and yeah. mysteries, which I think is really important to highlight just in terms of having seen Scared Straight and that episode of American Chronicles, he's clearly fascinated with the South. Yeah. So Well and it is it's a unique American mm-hmm. experience, you know, the the Deep South, uh New Orleans especially. I mean it's got that that great historical uh, intersection of French and Acadian and all these cultures come yeah. together and then, you know, African-American and, uh, you know, then you have the, the Southern kind of slave state uh, history over top of all that. It's, it's a really interesting place. Mm-hmm. So I can definitely see the appeal of it. And I think he uses it to pretty good effect in this. Sure. Absolutely. So let's talk about this. No, let's not. One other interesting tidbit <laughs> that I, that I came up with or that I found was um, that at the same time, or around the same time that this was filming in the New Orleans area, Oliver Stone was filming JFK, oh. which 
is really interesting. The article that I read about this, and I can't remember if it was a contemporaneous article or not, but they said that it worked to the advantage of this film production crew because the focus was on this big budget, you know, let's talk about Jim Garrison, let's talk about the, you know, conspiracy to kill President Kennedy and all that, that nobody was focused on this, which really, I mean, if this were the only film being done in New Orleans at the time, I am, I can imagine there might be some, some protests from the locals because it doesn't exactly paint... Southern culture, especially New Orleans culture, very kindly. Um, would you say that? Because I, well, we can come into this later, sure. but I, I think it, I think it gives a fairly positive uh, representation of of uh, of the issues and the positive steps people were taking at the time to address sure. those issues in the South. Um, but I, I think we can get into the issues with that yeah, maybe sure. in a little bit. Sure. Um, so now let's start with uh, a brief overview of um, the film, Storyville. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it tells the story of Cray Fowler. Yes. Uh, who is a, a fan, uh, uh, how would you describe him? He's not the patriarch. He's no, the, he's, he's the, the youngest inheritor. son of, uh, or the only son, I guess, of yeah, this, this, this Fowl- lineage. Yeah, the Fowler family uh, aristocrats almost. Yeah, I, I kind of viewed them, especially when you meet his estranged wife, um, who wears fancy hats and, you know, pantsuits. I kind of pictured them as being like a Southern Kennedy family yeah, almost. Yeah. So he's the youngest son, or like I said, the only son of this family um, who raised themselves up from a, you know, a shack in the bayou, yeah. you know, two generations ago yeah. and became yeah. this dynasty. And now Cray Fowler is running for Congress. Yeah. yeah. And is, so- is, did his father also run for Congress? I couldn't tell. I don't think so. I think so. His father was the one who kind of, uh, you know, instructed him in, in the ways of being a fowler, yeah. a risk-rat. Uh And yeah, I think there, his dealings were mostly focused on the business end of things right. still at this point. But it, it sounded like his, uh, they, they expected Cray to ascend and take his rightful place as yeah. congressman, later as governor, and then possibly even as president, yeah. which is, I mean, the kind of story that you know, white men just, you know, <laughs> of a certain age, this is just how their lives were supposed to go, yeah, exactly. I guess. Yeah. You know, you have money, you just ascend to these positions of power. It's a little unbelievable um, well, to look at this. It happens quite often. He's, but anyways. None of, okay, let's just preface this by saying that a lot of the things that happened in this, yeah. there, are, there are huge gaping plot yeah, holes yeah. and <laughs> things that just would never happen. And yeah. I just feel like this is this is maybe one of them. But either way. Sure. Um, so we've got Cray, who is running for Congress, and we have and, uh, his father, Aiden, mentioned. Yes. We committed suicide, ostensibly, about a year prior to this. To the start of the film, yes. So... Or about three years. Three years. Was it three so, years? Yeah, because that was when he was asking questions. So oh, it was about right, okay. three years earlier, uh, and we start off the film with him kind of researching, looking up the past headlines and thinking about this a little bit. So you kind of get this initial kick that uh, his father's suicide is kind of the... The central mystery, if you will, it's it's we were talking about it on the, the who way. Who killed Laura Palmer? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the it's a low budget who killed Laura Palmer, yeah. basically. Um, and it does, you know, it, a lot of things do spin off from there. Um, but anyways, Cray is yes, he's running for Congress, and he's got kind of an interesting life. He has uh, an estranged wife that yeah. you mentioned, uh, who's still actively involved in his campaign. I think it's probably just because she she's the picture of the good wife. Yeah, so exactly. she's the one that you would want to have next year candidate. Yeah, she's right? the Southern Belle who yeah. who fits in in that campaign. And strategy. he's got a campaign manager who's, you know, 
very high strung and and neurotic and and, 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 yeah. yeah a bit nerdy <laughs> the guy that you want to have running your campaign, campaign yeah um, and he's got two uncles who yes. are basically bankrolling him and, and helping him and, you know, making sure he can glad hand with all the right people along the way. Um, and, and the one the one uncle who is important to mention is Cliff. Yes. Cliff, played by Jason Robards. Mm-hmm. And uh, brilliantly by Jason Robards. Mm-hmm. If there is ever a guy you want to play a yeah, shifty patriarch, it's, yeah. it's Perfectly <laughs> Jason Robards. Perfectly cast, for sure. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and yeah, he's the one kind of advising the campaign and, and acting as, yeah, like a political advisor. Uh, but also... Beside this is this company that the that the Fettlers run. Yeah. That it's an oil company. It's an oil company. So they've so, they've bought they've landed on a bunch of oil rights about back in the 30s yeah. and after the war they uh, they've explored all these oil rights and they've made millions yeah. off that. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of all the background. The the thing that really gets the action started though uh, is. The after a campaign rally in a, uh, a mansion down in the bayou, yeah, somewhere. where people drink Pim's cups all the yeah, time. That's the just time. what people drink. <laughs> uh, he receives a note from an attractive young woman, uh, saying, He's waitressing at the waitressing yes. at the event, uh, saying, Meet me at Storyville at 9 30. Yeah. Uh, he meets her there. And, Storyville is a club, yes, it's a, a club, club in New Orleans. It's also an, a name that is associated with New Orleans as well, so it's yeah. kind of playing on, uh, this this idea that there's that there's layers to pasts I think happening here and layers yeah. to the city maybe mm-hmm. that this is a club but it's Inside also Storyville yeah yeah, yeah yeah in the French Quarter you know like it's very romantic but very nineties too like there's neon and weird oh, yeah. like designs they and art choices suits. and stuff like, oh so just, many suits yeah, and the just 90s billowy such shirts. A trip. Yeah, it's 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 quite nice. Uh, and so uh, he meets her there, they uh, go to her place, uh, which is an Aikido uh, dojo yeah. <laughs> on the third floor of a, a strange apartment building. Yeah. Um, and she seduces him in a hot tub. But um, after she kicks his ass yeah, in a very kicks, yeah. Aikido way, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, she's flipping him around and he punches her in the face at one point. Yeah, it's very we, We'll have a talk about the action scenes because there are a couple and uh, we laughed at all of them. Uh, but anyways, uh, so she does seduce him and then you realize he's being videotaped. Yeah. Uh, the the affair that is happening is being captured on film. Yeah. Um, obviously for some blackmail purposes. Uh, but from there, it just kind of spirals out of control because uh, this woman named Lee uh, also shows up on his doorstep and she's been beat up and she says, oh, there's a tape of us. Can you help me? Uh, my, my father taped us. So uh, <laughs> Cray... Follows her back to the dojo, gets beat up by the by the father this time. He jumps uh, Cray. They have another fight sequence uh, near the hot tub. <laughs> and then uh, they both knock each other out. And when Cray wakes up, the father's been murdered. Uh, had his throat slit with a knife nearby. And Cray grabs a knife, runs out of there. Oh, now it's important to mention at this point that Cray is also a lawyer. Yes, and so he's, he's a not public defender by yes, trade. Yes, yes. So he's not exactly um, tied into this this oil business. Um, except insofar as the money is is yeah. bankrolling his campaign, but so yes, as a, as a public defender, his interest in this is is twofold. He threefold really because not only has he woken up apparently well clearly worried that he's been framed for this murder of this woman's father. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also thinks that she did it, mm-hmm. so. But in a, in a weird way, he feels the need not only to defend her, but I guess to, to defend her, not only to get her off, but to protect his own image. Because yeah. there's nothing you want more than to 
you know, very highly publicize your involvement in a murder case that you may be framed for <laughs> while running for Congress. Yeah, it's so, it's a little convoluted. But and, yeah. and none of the at no point does he seem worried about the fact that he was there at the scene. He left DNA evidence behind when yeah. he cut himself on on a piece of glass. He was seen by uh, someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah a vice cop who's kind yeah. of lurking around in the shadows. Yeah. Um, and yet he's still defending this woman for a crime that he's pretty sure she committed and he's been framed. For. Well, he doesn't know. Yeah, it's so those. So, yeah, basically what happens next is, yes, she gets arrested and charged with the murder. Um, and there's this whole story about uh, the the man who's working for his opponent's campaign as security detail is also the cop who arrests her. Yes. Um, and but also as a double agent that th- his campaign is secretly financing. Who's this character, by the way, is uh, played by the same actor. Michael plays, Parks, Michael who plays Jean Reno in, yeah. in Twin Peaks. So I will obviously be calling him Jean Reno because yes. I could not remember anybody's name beyond Jean Reno. Uh, so Jean Reno is kind of this <laughs> triple agent, maybe. It's very confusing. He's a cop. He's He's running security. He's also a mole for the. the and he crazy. was a Green Beret. Yeah, yeah. In Nam, it's it's very very confusing how these people are connected. The hit this character Jean Reno slash Trevelyan is yeah. his last name. Okay. Uh, how he is connected to Cray Fowler's opponent, but also connected to the Fowler family. Yeah. Which doesn't come out until much later in the film. On top of all of this, there's the district attorney who is prosecuting this case, who is also. I don't, I'm not sure if she's his ex-wife yeah, or no, ex-girlfriend. No, I think just ex-girlfriend. Cray Fowler's ex. Yeah. So, of course, there's <laughs> simmering tensions there. And and then you get this, this strange interplay because Lee and her father were from Vietnam, immigrated to the United States after her mother was killed during the war, and he began prostituting her out in kind of like a... a New Orleans Chinatown yeah, sort of thing. plot twist crossover thing that's very confusing. Yeah. But anyway, um, this film is not easy to to kind of get into, and 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 it that's not just us saying it. It's it's also other people that I read about uh, on various forums have said the same thing that yeah. it's it kind of convoluted and yeah. There's there's a lot of there's not many characters, but they've thrown in every connection to everybody yeah. at any time. And the backstabbing Everything. and the triple crossing. Yeah, and it's it's all very a lot of this. convoluted. Uh, yeah, we haven't even mentioned uh, he has an ally in a, in a he's another lawyer. But he's not a right. public defender, but he's a defense attorney. It's kind yeah. of like a Johnny Cochran type. <laughs> um, and he's he's a representative of the black community in, in yeah. New Orleans. And, you know, his endorsement will bring uh, Fowler into the into the race. Because at the beginning of this film, he is trailing his opponent by 20 points. Yeah. So his plan is, yeah, not only to clear his own name by clearing the name of this woman that he's pretty sure murdered her father, but also by putting himself on the front page of the paper every morning in defending her, uh, He's defending a minor, an ethnic absolutely. woman who's, you know, and it'll a raise his crime. profile yeah. and and cause him to win in a landslide. Yeah. So it's there's a lot going on. There's, there's a, lot a lot at stake. Um, and and then yeah, just on top of it, you've got this old money kind of old money um, intrigue with just families, very very wealthy families. Yeah, and and to summarize that the family aspect quickly. Again, we're not doing this quickly at all. But uh, so basically, he finds the the Johnny Cochran figure uh, says, "Oh, look into the oil rights for your for your uh, family's company that you acquired back in the '30s, um, and you know, let me know if you fe- find anything strange." 
Um, he looks into it. There's a bit of double crossing and some threats made, but he basically figures out that his grandfather uh, basically stole the land and the oil rights from uh, a bunch of black sharecroppers who, you know, they were the first freed people of this generation or so. Um, and uh, yeah, he stole their rights and exploited it for millions of dollars. So obviously pretty unethical. Uh, he feels bad about it. So did his father, as it turns out. Um, and to summarize everything, it turns out that his uncle who is actually his father, uh, killed the man he thought was his father, uh, Raymond Fowler, uh, when Raymond was also going to expose the company's uh, terrible history and the fact that they'd probably have to liquidate and sell all their assets back to these families that they'd uh, exploited for so long. So at the end of the film, when Cray wins in a landslide because it turns out that via another action sequence that Aiden will talk about at length, um, his opponent... Ends up being, yeah, implicated in, uh, I don't even know what he's implicated in, but he's... (laughs) The murder of the father, kind of, in a roundabout way. Uh, So Cray wins and then tells uh, his uncle slash father that he is going to expose the whole thing and pay reparations to the descendants of these uh, sharecroppers in order to right the wrongs of the past because the past is never dead. And that's kind of the the theme of this whole thing is that the past never dies. Um, And never is that more true than in a place like New Orleans where the past lives around you all the time. So um, again, like Twin Peaks, this is a a story that really feels like it couldn't have been said anywhere else, which is partly why I'm really interested to read Juryman just to see um, how that, that how it transferred in the Australian novel. But um, but the sense of place here is very strong. And even when you have strange elements like, you know, the 80s and 90s action films from China and Japan that, that you know, yeah. so you, you have to have an Asian influence. You have yeah. to have Asian characters who are... Who are kung fu fighting. Yeah, like, well, I keep yeah. It, but whatever. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you have all the, the you know, the dripping... Uh, what are those trees with the moss that fall? You know, so you've got this wisteria and you've got like, you know, the southern elements and you've got, you know, yeah. the, the only thing that's missing is there is no voodoo in this. Yeah, but, that's true. Yeah. Um, There's no I mean, magic in no, this one. There's no, no really. supernatural element. But yeah. But yeah, it 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 still feels like even though you have that that um, that Eastern element in terms of the, the action Oh, and including a headline, Asian man killed. This time it's Asian woman held in father's death. Yes. It's, yeah, it's, was there an exclamation mark? I think there was an exclamation mark. Amazing. But it was a great Twin Peaks reference. clearly a Mark Frost. <laughs> yes, line <laughs> in uh, season two, yeah. We are all over the place in this episode. We really apologize for that. <laughs> well, no, um, actually that makes a good transition into what we want to talk about next, which yeah. is the few. there are a few links to uh, Twin Peaks and a few uh, comparisons that we wanted to make. Uh, so first of all, uh, there are a few... Uh, Cast and production Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Joanna Ray did all the casting. Yeah. you got Michael Parks in here. Uh, Piper Laurie Piper plays Laurie. Cray Fowler's mother, Constance, who yeah. was wanted to be a nun but ended up impregnated by Cliff. Uh, to, and give birth to, to give birth to Cray, Cray yeah. but then she married Raymond, Raymond which is strange. But yeah. either way, she's she's a little bit crazy, and, and Piper Laurie does that really, yeah. really beautifully. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and then are there any other Twin Peaks actors or... Uh, no, but there was a uh, Mark Frost connection. Uh, what's his name from uh, Hill Street Blues? Two characters. 
From Hill Street. There Blues. were two? I only yeah. recognized the one. Okay. Uh, the main redheaded character whose Lindsay's whose name Lindsay is looking up right now as we speak on her phone. Uh, he was one of the main characters from Hill Street Blues, and he makes an appearance here as a leather-clad pornographer. Oh, yeah. Um, who shoots both, well, yeah, shoots interesting stuff, shall we say. Yes. Yeah, his name is Charles Hayde. Yes. So he plays Abe on the... Uh, Hill Street Blues. And Hill Street Blues. Yeah. And uh, Nathan uh, LaFleur from Hill Street Blues, played by Michael Warren. He is the... He, he was oh, the partners. The, that's the, the, right. the two partners he plays in he, Storyville, the African-American lawyer. Yes. That tips Cray off to the I didn't recognize him. He, Neither did he I. I did, but different. I didn't. And, oh, and okay. I did the same thing with... with uh, with Hade. I yeah. didn't I didn't Yeah, you didn't recognize Hade at all. I until the courtroom scene at the end. Yeah. And I yeah. was like, oh my god, that's a guy from Hill Street Blues. Yeah, right? yeah. So he brought the two main partners back, which yeah. was uh they were kind of the central characters in uh, the episodes of Hill Street Blues that we saw. Well um, and they were, the captain, they were initially supposed to be the, the main characters, yeah. I think, of the whole show. Yeah. Before but it kind of expanded into as the ensemble that, yes. cast that it did. Um, but yeah, so there were definitely some connections with the past, uh, similar to, in a lot of ways, uh, Wild at Heart, which, you know, drew on... Well, David Lynch in general, having yeah. a stable of people that he would call on, you know, it seems like Mark Frost was assembling his own his little... troop. Yeah, it was But um, in, in different ways, I think. Uh, like, like I mentioned about the place, the sense of place, and how Twin Peaks is very wedded to its surroundings. Um, that's how Storyville feels. I mean, not just named after, you know, a storied part of New Orleans past, but also being uh feeling like i said that it it really couldn't have been said anywhere else i think Mm -hmm. that is um interesting to me as a writer but also just illuminating in the sense of um how mar frost works with with the stories that that he chooses to tell yeah um and as i mentioned also there is that central kind of mystery of what happened to his father it's it's kind of a suicide and then it's referenced as oh it was a hunting accident um, and very a very uh, Dick Cheney esque. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but, and yeah, so there's there's this kind of question raising. Obviously, he's kind of looking into it at the start of the the film as well. Yeah, Aiden actually said he felt James Bader's character felt like a low budget Dale Cooper. Yeah, in some ways. But you know, he he's very 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 different in yeah, many other ways. Yes, like there's yeah. no moral compass there. He's he's no, he's a he's a consummate he politician oh, in yeah. a lot of ways. And yeah, um, what's interesting about the mystery um, is that yes, it starts with this kind of central question, which is craze not necessarily believing the verdict, I guess, that his father committed suicide, which isn't necessarily a um, purposefully a driving force for him but it does kind of inform a lot of the decisions that he makes as he goes through and discovers that um what how all these other things are connected to his father um in that sense it feels like there is a central question that has these spokes kind of like the who killed laura palmer idea But it's lacking something as well. well. It's not, it, those spokes are never, you can never see those spokes. All of a sudden they just appear at the end kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, this mystery is also connected to this so, in a way that we didn't care about. And I mean this, okay, so the the story was written in 82, long before Twin Peaks was around. Um, Mark Frost was attached to it before he was involved with Twin mm-hmm. Peaks as well. So how much of this is just coincidence? I don't know. But it does seem like this is very much a novel 
Yes. It's, it feels like that's a plot twist that you would read in a John Grisham yeah, thriller. Yeah, and you'd be you like, know? oh, yeah. yeah, now I get it. Yeah. Right, so so watching it on screen, I, I'm not sure that that came across yeah, as well. It didn't translate as well. I feel like this would be a very good book, and it didn't do well as a film because, and I don't know if that's just because it wasn't adapted well. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. And Mark Frost was responsible for adapting it, so mm-hmm. I'm I'm not sure that that is where the fault is. Again, without having read the novel, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, there there do there does seem to be a lot of um, a lot of elements that are coming into play that it feels like the episodes of Twin Peaks that that in the second season that did kind of branch out and didn't focus so much on that central question. So and suffered for it. It yeah. suffered for it, and I think that's where the film kind of lacks focus as well, is in the sense that we don't really know. Like Cray wants to find out what happened to his dad. He also wants to win this election. He also wants to clear his name. He also wants to defend this woman. The motivations for him are all very murky, and and he wants to divorce his wife, but he kind of yeah. Like I mean, it's, it's 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 all very mixed up and muddled, which maybe is is true to life, but um, makes for a complicated story story. yeah yeah yeah, it really did suffer for that i think more than anything else uh there was just too much happening at once yeah and and uh yeah his motivations i found very very murky and confusing uh it seemed like sometimes he was he had a a bit of a moral compass he was a good guy and at the end it seems to try and reclaim him as um at the end he says like oh we are gonna give uh the families that we ripped off everything and this family will cooperate fully it doesn't matter what you say uncle father (laughs) um and it's you know that kind of feels unearned because he was also kind of a dick to a lot of people in the interim yeah and he's basically been using people and he's very craven about um selling himself out to the uh, african-american lawyer uh saying like oh yeah well you're getting out of this you're gonna have a congressman in your back pocket i'll do mm-hmm. whatever you want to do like it's very craven politics in that way yeah. um again it is true to life but it, it muddles his character to a really profound extent like even when lee shows up uh bruised and wounded and she instantly says oh my father filmed you um he starts like throwing money yeah, at he her he recoils and, like, from he recoils. her he wants nothing to do with her like, at that point well now because, you're evil to me it's yeah it's, you're da- yeah. you're gonna damage my reputation so it's i'm not sure if that was um what the what the point of that was because it doesn't exactly make you feel sympathy for him no but that also is a little bit to you know that's James Spader, and I I love James Spader as an actor, and I feel he plays a really good villain. Yeah, Lindsay was um, like, wait, he's a good guy. I don't, I can't watch this. I don't know how to watch him as a good guy. So in a, yeah, in a way, even when he is a good guy, he's he's not a good guy. You I know, know. I and I felt that I felt that was good. Like it's it, and he does do a really good job. I didn't say he was bad in the sense that his nope. acting was yeah, bad. Yeah, no, yeah. I just feel like it was. He has this kind of evil undertone. That well, you- <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure that if it were somebody else playing that role, would I feel the same way? Or is it yeah. just because it's James Spader? Okay, fair enough. I, I don't have a connection to this actor really at all. I, I, you said he was in 16 Candles. I couldn't even I remember I didn't that. say he was in 16 Candles. I said he was in Pretty and Pink. Pretty and Pink. See, I can't even remember which John Hughes film it is. Uh, <laughs> like, and I, I honestly, I don't think I've seen too many uh, films with him, but he was quite good in this. Uh, I thought he was one of the high points for me. He, oh, yeah. he was funny at moments. He had some really good one-liners. Uh, he did well in the courtroom scenes, mm-hmm. of which I will talk about briefly. Uh, of which I will talk about briefly? Yes, of which, which I will talk about. Of? A- There's no of. Why do you have to use that preposition? Because I'm going to speak about them. 
I'm not about say, which. I about was which. Saying. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, grammar Nazi lady. Yeah. <laughs> you're my favorite. Uh, <laughs> about which I will speak shortly about them, maybe, mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but beyond, uh, he did great in the courtroom scenes. He was, uh, you know, all the stuff. He had, he had a, a bit of believable tension, especially with the DA. Mm-hmm. Uh, they kind of clicked a little bit. I liked mm-hmm. them together. Um, and, you know, the only thing I think he... Really struggled was in the fight scenes, yeah. Uh, which were Aiden, this is all yours. Okay, I so here's my rant about the action scenes. Uh, they are typical of yes, early '90s uh, Western movies trying to cash in on you know uh, Jackie Chan level super cop, you know, great Hong Kong action movies, uh, and also you know Japanese uh, samurai films and stuff mm. that were becoming more popular as japan became you know really popular in america more um a player on the international y- stage. yeah exactly yeah um and it, they're just they're bad these these action scenes in this film are quite quite bad um in what way uh well <laughs> they're they're you know the action doesn't feel really visceral uh he just punches a girl it feels in the choreographed face. For it feels sure. super choreographed and i think that's where i maybe because if you've if you're used to watching uh, even even a Jackie Chan film or something where it's very smooth and yeah improbable and unbelievable, unbelievable yeah, yeah, yeah. but still m- kind of makes sense. Yeah, the this one doesn't, yeah, and the- even just the matchup, like all of a sudden, you know, uh, Cray Fowler, who's this rich boy from the Bayou, is going to go toe to toe with a with a, a master, keto master yeah. from Vietnam, which by the like, way doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, it, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. But also, it just feels like that wouldn't he? He's not a match for him. No, but he, he should his own for far longer yeah, than he ought to. Like, yeah, he a looks like he's a boxer, bit. maybe. But yeah. it, it, earlier in the thing, he wasn't boxing when the other guy was boxing. It, there's a, there's some there were some holes to be filled there for sure. Um, but anyways, yeah, they they don't feel particularly vibrant or useful except for the one scene in the courtroom which i have to talk about Lindsay. i'm sorry this was less of a fight scene and more of the greatest um, gun shoot this is the greatest courtroom scene in the history of film oh wow this beats out a few good men the finale of a few good men okay this is how good this this courtroom scene is basically he's uh they found a counter witness that negates everything that uh was said so basically, Jean Renault and uh, the cop from <laughs> uh, Hill Street Blues, again, not going to remember their names. Uh, the, they porn, the, the, the porn, porn pornographer, yes. yes. Uh, the two of them have, uh, they, they were the ones who killed the uh, Lee's father. Um, and they were framing, uh, what's his name for it, Cray. Uh, and basically, they bring in this witness that explains this. And what happens? Well, Jean pulls out a gun and starts shooting at in the, the witness. In the middle of the courtroom. In the middle of the courtroom. As soon as the witness has said, oh, that's the guy who did it. I saw him take the knife and go upstairs. And, and I, when he came down, he didn't have the knife again. And uh, Jean just starts shooting, hits Cray in the arm, mm-hmm. uh, misses the witness. Um, and then he gets, sh- he gets shot in the back a couple times uh, by, you know, sheriffs or whatever. Uh, and then, but as he's going to go down, he's going to shoot Cray in the face and, and, you know, get no, his No, he's revenge. already down and then he gets yeah, up he gets to up shoot again, him again. To shoot Cray again, like finish him off. And then the judge pulls out a giant magnum and just shoots him from behind the bench. And uh, Lindsay and I laugh. <laughs> we laugh at movies constantly. Um, this almost this one, needed us to stop the film. Yeah, we, uh, yeah. Because it was just so over the top. Now, I don't amazing. know if judges routinely keep guns 
beneath their robes when they're sitting there listening to cases. Um, well, in I, Canada, I don't it seems think ridiculous. That's something that Maybe, happens. No, I'm sure in Texas, it's probably a law where a judge has to have a shotgun under the thing. Or that something. was not a shotgun. No, that was a, a concealed gun. weapon, the size of a like it, it was a Magnum. It, it was, was a big it was gun, a giant pistol, and not a pistol, a revolver. But it was, uh, and he just pulled it out, and it was just, it was so the timing and the dramatic music. It and is I a think, great was scene. It, it was in slow motion as well. It was well. in slow motion, and he just he shot him right in the the badge uh, <sighs> because, of course, he was a cop. So you know, it was the law coming down and correcting itself. Uh, oh, know, don't read too much. Terrible metaphor, it. yeah. Uh, and so we 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 just burst out laughing. This was the greatest thing I've ever seen. Um, and Lindsay, what did you think of it? Well, it was funny, but it really <laughs> did take me out of the moment because yeah. I was really trying hard to follow along because I felt like. Finally, in this film, I was understanding how things were connected. Um, The pornographer's uh, subject of of the films and photos that he was taking was, you know, betraying his boss and revealing that that Jean Reno slash Trevelyan was um, involved in this cover up and they were they were evil bad dudes who were going to get their comeuppance. And all of a sudden a gunfight breaks out in a courtroom. (laughs) It was just like... It completely it was took just, me out of the moment. Yeah, it was it was really unbelievable. But a movie served, that strained credibility at the best time. Yeah, but it, I mean, it serves to kind of tie a bow on that. Yeah, part that part of, of the plot. The plot, yeah. which then leads to the the revelation at the end when Cray is recovering in hospital, he discovers that um, his uncle didn't actually have, uh, or Trevelyan, who didn't have the tape. Oh yeah, no. They they assume. Sorry to back up. The, the, the he was getting blackmailed by somebody saying, "Oh, I have this tape of you guys together. Yeah, uh, I'll use it." Um, and they all assumed that it was the other campaign. Oh yes, that's right. But then when the other campaign dropped yes. out, and they never they, released the yes. tape, so they figured, and that's when Cray puts puts it together that his uncle was the one who had the tape. Father uncle. Father uncle. Um, so the night that he wins the election, not only does, is that the night that Cray um, presents his wife with divorce papers saying, you know, I've caught you cheating on me. So yeah, you need to there was leave photo now, evidence of that, which was a total other sidebar that was never addressed until the end. No. Um, he confronts his uncle with this evidence that he has the tape and and that is now it's never fully explained why his uncle no. was trying to blackmail, blackmail his slash frame him for murder. Yeah. Like he was behind that whole All murder thing too. So yeah, there are plot holes the size of the Grand Canyon yeah. in this film. Um, which if you're not that interested, if you, if you just want to watch something that is moody and dark and rainy and, um, full of intrigue and backstabbing, then fine. This this will satisfy your need for a kind of grown-up soap opera in, in a movie format. Yeah. But it's definitely not... You know, as, as Twin Peaks fans, we look for clues and we want to pick things apart. And, and there's just... The story just isn't tight enough to warrant that kind of interest era. Introspection? That's in... Yeah, well, just any sort of inspection. inspection. Any sort of inspection, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it just doesn't... Fit because there's just not enough to pick apart and and the threads are all over the place anyway yeah. so you're really not you know yeah the, you pull at one and the whole tapestry so falls just, apart yeah that's a very good summary yeah yeah the difference is down here the past isn't dead it isn't even past so what did you like about the film well there were a few parts um i thought for the most part 
uh, as a director, I thought Mark Frost did a pretty good job. Yeah. Uh, it felt a lot like uh, the way, I mean, there's some, there's some quick action things and there's some, uh, you know, he's, he's setting mood pretty mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it felt a bit like the season one finale that was directed by Mark Frost. Sure. Um, in the sense that there's like, there's action sequences and there's like when those visceral things happen, like, uh, uh, when when the gunfight does start happening, you're like, oh my god, this is really intense. Mm-hmm. Until the judge pulled out the gun, so like there there was some captivating uh, visual work done. Um, I as I mentioned, James Spader, I thought did a really good job. There were some pretty funny moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the uh, there was his nerdy uh, campaign, campaign manager was was pretty good. He had a few funny lines, um, and and I did like the the sense of place. I, I agree with you on that. I thought that was really great, um, it, and. I, I, I really do. Maybe it was just because we had watched all the other Mark Frost projects, but I was like, yes, he's returning to this place because he could have said it anywhere in America since it wasn't in Australia. And he chose this place for a specific reason. And I thought he did a good job of dressing that. Um, I know you kind of disagreed, but I thought um, in Cray Fowler's um, moral ambiguity, mm-hmm. um, I thought that was like he at the end, he does the right thing in saying like, our family's going to come clean. We're going to you know probably lose all our money. Um, but it was the right thing to do because we we fleeced these poor black families that you know had nothing and we stole what could have been millions of dollars from them Mm -hmm. um you know that's kind of like as a politician he's doing he's doing the positive thing he's he's taking a step forward uh politically but i mean he has no moral compass (laughs) personally and uh you know he was as i mentioned earlier very craven about like well i need the african-american vote to get me elected so i'll do whatever it takes to do that he doesn't actually necessarily want to address their issues that never comes up once it's very much just you know a political game um so i feel like it's it's a good representation of um a bit of a i want to say nuance but nuance isn't really the right word it's an okay representation of 1992 politics in the deep south i would say you what did you like Lindsay? if if those were my kind of highlights um, well, I agree with you that I like the direction, Mark Frost direction. I feel like this is, uh, there's not a lot stylistically that's like, you, you couldn't watch this and say, oh, this is definitely Mark Frost. No. But we haven't watched enough of Mark Frost stuff to really be able to say well, that. Well, he's not a director. I mean, no, and, for the and, most part. Yeah. And a lot of directors have very specific things that, that they use time and time again. David Lynch does it. Um, Who's the guy, lens flare guy? Oh, yeah, J.J. J.J. Abrams does, you know, it's very clear when you're watching films by by certain directors that, that there are things that they do. And um, maybe that is something that Mark Frost would have developed if he continued down that path. But there just isn't anything remarkable about it. But mm-hmm. that works in its favor. It's yeah. it's just very tight directing. And I yeah. read, it, I read a, a review of the film... I think it was Roger Ebert's review from the time, from when it was released in 92, where he, and, and he was not a big fan of David Lynch's stuff. He came around to it later in in his career, but, um, but he definitely was not singing Lynch's praises. So he takes a couple of pot shots at Lynch as a director, saying, in comparing the two, and saying that that David Lynch approaches material like he's above it somehow or removed from it, um, and I would call it—it's not—it's not ironic. 
It's not irony. He's not treating the subject matter with irony. I disagree with Roger Ebert on that, that that there's a removal there or something. I think I think, I think Lynch David Lynch is very, is very invest- involved yeah. in in the material that he that he dives into. And, and in he the does it. Yes, out, he yeah. does it very purposefully. Um, because he's very connected to it and he only puts things that mean something to him on screen. Um, there's a difference though with Mark Frost in, in the way that they approach it. I think he's also very invested in the story and he, he does it very in a very straight way. Um, he's not trying to comment on the medium that he's using to, uh, give you this information. He's not, um, He's not making big metaphorical comments on society like in Blue Velvet or something like that. So, I mean, there's there's a there's a definite difference there. Mark Frost just shoots very straight and very um, tightly on the story and that's it. And and that is it's it's a very uh, like this felt like a, a darker, moodier episode of hill street blues Mm -hmm. like it just it felt like a police procedural um with that extra movie type mystery thrown on top of it yeah which is great and And it's it's very much better production oh absolutely but um but yeah that that was an interesting thing to kind of look at if you're comparing the two and and knowing that mark frost isn't a director first and foremost so he's approaching this as a writer director it's it's different but but still, it was it, it's interesting to contrast the two. And I do like Mark Frost's approach. I think it's just simple and it's, it does the job and and it's fine. Yeah, and it it's works good. for a story like this that isn't delving into metaphysical questions yeah, exactly. or supernatural elements. It is telling a very direct human story. But what's interesting is, um, and we keep coming back to this, the idea that um, watching more of Mark Frost's stuff illuminates things about Twin Peaks that... Mm-hmm we didn't necessarily attribute to Mark Frost initially. So yeah, the season one finale or some of the season two stuff that meanders a bit and gets into actual historical stuff like project blue book or, um, the stuff that the secret history of twin peaks delves into with Philema and all of these things that are interests that Mark Frost has had going way back. Mm -hmm. Uh, though the approaches that he makes to those things are um, very straightforward and very to the point, he where where he and Mark where Mark Frost and David Lynch differ in their approaches to these things, I think, is that David Lynch doesn't care about the answers to the questions he's asking. He might have answers himself. He expects you to just have your own answers. He doesn't. He doesn't care though if you get there or not. He wants you to enjoy the experience. He wants you to go through and sit in your dark room, preferably in a movie theater, with great sound and experience his films. Mark Frost very much cares about where he's taking you, mm-hmm. and even if he doesn't spell it out for you, even if he doesn't say this is a plus this is B, plus this is C equals this. He he still lays it out so if you want to find those answers, you can. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think his directorial style suits this type of project very, very well mm-hmm. because 
if you want to piece together the mystery, you know, there's enough there that you could, and, and the material, the source material itself is not great. So just to put that out there, it's not the greatest story, but stories like this mm-hmm. do very well with that type of approach. Yeah. Um, had Mark Frost directed The Return? It's an interesting well, thing, and I've well, never thought about that before today, before we watched Storyville, because it's just, it's almost inconceivable to me. I, I don't think about Mark Frost as a director, but having watched this and thinking about his approach to directing, how different the return would be, even if the material, the written material on the page was exactly the same, mm-hmm. you know? Well, I think it's more interesting to consider... That I agree with you 100% on, on the difference between the two of them. Um, but I think it's more just generally as storytellers. Uh, David Lynch doesn't really care about, you know, your your arrival at an answer to a mm-hmm. question. Mark Frost does care about it. He might not give you the answer, but as you said, he, he wants to walk you through it. And I think that uh, is something you mentioned, Lindsay, is that uh, in The Return, it was Mark Frost's insistence that uh, we leave Twin Peaks and we go to Las right. Vegas and we go to Bucking Buck. Buckhorn. Bucking? I was going to say Buckingham, but that's not it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, in New York and all those places. Argentina. Yeah, Argentina. Paris. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, Mark's, Mark Frost's influence in The Return is definitely there. And I think it is in those, the way there, there's hints of more answers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not so much. Uh, hints of more answers that have. And that are answers in and of themselves, not just more questions. I think that's how David Lynch does is he'll hint at things that just lead to more questions. And I think that Mark Mm. Frost will lead to questions that actually have answers. Potentially. And I think, I mean, I mean, whatever, when, when we, right before we uh, watched the final two episodes of Twin Peaks, we had a list of 46 questions from the return that Mm -hmm. hadn't been answered. And I think none of them were answered. So Mm -hmm. there was probably just 58 by the time the series was actually over. So I don't think this is like something that's just exclusive to David Lynch, uh, that Mark Frost will leave something unanswered. And we mentioned that in previous podcasts that, you know, uh, with, uh, not scared stiff, but the believers, yeah. how there was, there were still some unanswered questions. There was still mm-hmm. some ambiguity about what was right and what was wrong and who was good and who was bad. Um, you know, and I, I, we, I, at least I remember saying that, uh, Mark Frost is happy in that ambiguity still same as Lynch to an extent. Um, but sorry, go ahead. Those questions are, are almost moral questions. They're yeah. questions that each individual has to answer yes. based on themselves. But, it's it's different than the questions that David Lynch. But but I don't. I think that's where they come together so well. Is that the end? Uh, final questions of the return are you know was Agent Cooper right in what he did? Uh, is Laura okay? Is she good? Is she evil? What is Judy? You know, like these are moral questions at the end of the day. And I think David Lynch tends to eschew those in something like Inland Empire where, you know, it's just emotions and tugging and uh, ideas and images. And there is no moral grounding. There is no human questions of, is this a good thing that's happening uh, as you watch the story? And I think Mark Frost's influence here is that, uh, yes, Craig Fowler, I mean, uh, again, yeah, I think it's more an issue with the source material and the fact this, I think the script could have used a little more polish too, but, uh, you know, is Cray Fowler a good person or a bad person? There's no real answer in the story. Um, and I think that's a detriment in this kind of story that you're telling, where you yeah. kind of wanted a hero. Um, having Cray be the the anti-hero slash hero is, is just a middle road that doesn't work very well in this mm-hmm. film. 
Um, but I think that level of ambiguity is, is again, something that Frost actually does take, take pride in the charging. That brings me to the thing that bothered me most about um, having this film. Uh, what I think would, would have caused you know, residents of the city to oppose it. You're right, Aiden, in the sense that um, he does take the the correct path in in seeking justice for these displaced sharecroppers that have been screwed, royal, mm-hmm. royally screwed out of millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, but it's this idea that um, that the only place in America where this kind of story could happen, and we, we said it ourselves, this feels like this is the only place where this could happen. Mm-hmm. It necessitates that the community itself be built on layers and layers of lies and, mm-hmm. and old money and mysteries. And, and it's a stereotype that I think I, I haven't been to Louisiana. I haven't been um, farther south. Well, I've been to Los Angeles. That's <laughs> as far south in the United States as I've been. Yeah. <laughs> um, very different on the West Coast yeah. from yeah. from uh, the deep south. But I don't think that's something that... Um, I, and I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but it feels like that's something that people might have taken issue with. That this is the only thing that we're, that we're known for is, is, you know, the mystery and the mysticism of our location i i guess but i mean that is yeah i mean it is it's playing off stereotypes for sure but i don't think they're like necessarily bad stereotypes i mean they well, they were they, it is a land built upon slavery and it is absolutely a place where absolutely. black people have been exploited and it is a place of the intermixing of cultures which is new orleans right like there there's that all the stuff that the film relies upon i don't feel are inaccurate or wrong and i don't feel like he's exploiting them for you know a, a kind of nefarious purpose but i don't know i, can no, see I, don't, I just from, i just yeah. feel like it's it's exploitative in a sense because just because that's what everybody does mm-hmm. everybody comes to new orleans to talk about um the seedy things that people do yeah. in the french quarter yeah. and the seedy things that that um you inherit from your you know great grandfather who you know <laughs> lived yeah, in a the shanty colonel, in, the colonel crowd yes. father yeah right yeah. or grandfather yes, yeah, not yeah. great grandfather but still you know these are these are inherited injustices that that's the only thing that 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 yeah. that's the only possible story that could be told yeah there's nothing you know? there's nothing in the present that doesn't have to do with yeah the, like the when, history where of, where yeah. are the stories in in louisiana that are just you know straight up romantic comedies where yeah, are the yeah, yeah. you know well uh true detective did it pretty good. It's not a romantic comedy. No, no, but it's it's just set in the <laughs> okay. present day. <laughs> but still, that's that's a story yeah. that that deals with deep, dark, underbelly, seedy crap yeah, that's going yeah. on. Fair enough. It's it's. But it, yeah, and I guess it like is, those stories don't happen too. in New York City. They don't happen in. Yeah, you yeah. know, yeah, like I can see where you're coming from. Nebraska. It just that doesn't. There happen. are no stories in Nebraska. Wow. Just kidding to my Nebraska listeners. I'm sure things happen, but, but it's like again, Alberta. Nothing happens here. Then so. <laughs> again, um, stories like that don't happen in Twin Peaks, Washington, and we've got you know the entire story of Twin Peaks in the seedy <laughs> underbelly of a Pacific Northwest town. So maybe I'm wrong, but no. But I, I can see where you're going. It relies on certain tropes, but yeah. I think that is just a narrative choice that 
that helps set the mood. You're, mm-hmm. you're in you're in New Orleans. He's driving down the street in his convertible. He's waving to people. He's talking to the guy Fats, who has the yeah. that voice, uh, the deep gravelly. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, like he he's relying on these as tropes, but um, yeah, I, I don't find them really exploitative. So I. I I disagree a That's little fine. bit, but it's I can definitely see. I also like the music. I'm just gonna throw that out there. I don't know who the composer is. I didn't look that yeah, up, but we, I did. I yeah. did quite enjoy the the mm-hmm. music that was used. Um, I can't think of anything that I really Except really disliked <laughs> aside the, from the all plot, the, plot, the character, no. some of the other. No, characters. I mean it was all serviceable. It all mm-hmm. worked, and I think that for once I turned my brain off a little bit and I stopped trying to piece the mystery together the way that I've been taught to. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more. Yeah. So I, I definitely think that this is, you know, if you're a Twin Peaks fan and you haven't seen Storyville, it's probably a good idea to, to seek it out just because yeah. it does have such a connection to the show that we all love. Mm-hmm. Um, even even just, you know, time-wise, the way it fits into the chronology, it's interesting to watch. Um, and it's also good to just expose yourself to a little bit of, a little bit more Mark Frost yeah, definitely. Goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even though it's not his best work. No, it's, it's, but it's, uh, it's, it's very, it's serviceable and it, and you do get a sense of, uh, again, if you're looking for that, that more in-depth view of what, mm-hmm. what did Mark Frost bring to the table mm-hmm. uh, that we've been looking at, I think this definitely does help expose some of that. So what's next for us? Uh, next up we have Hotel Room. Ooh, interesting. Uh, yes, which is, a, it was an HBO uh, miniseries. Yeah. Uh, all, it's a bunch of separate stories set in one hotel room, basically. And I think Lynch directed two of the four episodes, I think. Or there might have been only three episodes, but I think he directed two. Well, we might watch all of them. I think they're only At least he is in that, too, is she not? I believe I believe so. I believe also, uh, what's your name from Mulholland Drive? Laura Elena Herring? Possibly. I don't remember. Not Naomi Watts. Not Naomi Watts, no. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so... That's uh, cool because that's one that, again, I haven't seen it and we we do have a copy of it. We were given, um, gifted by one of our... I think it's also on Crave, though, as well. Hotel Uh, Room? Yeah, they they have the whole HBO back catalog for the most part. So I think we can find it on there, too. Interesting. For Canadian listeners. Canadian listeners, if you don't have Crave, you really should get Crave. So how have you been watching Twin Peaks if you haven't Yeah, you've probably been... You've probably got Crave. But then definitely check out uh, some of that stuff if it's it's on... um, crave that's even better yeah. but uh yeah that'll be interesting I'm, I'm really keen to dive into that one because um i didn't know it existed until a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and then uh, it's hard to track down if you don't have you know premium cable so yeah. uh so yeah we'll be looking at that um and i think after that i think it's an i think we'll probably go on to lost highway next because there was a bit of a inter interregnum for uh, interregnum? Mark, mark frost uh in terms of tv writing yeah he didn't he didn't go back to do anything until 98 yeah um but he did start his novel writing yes. career so yeah, we are going to hold off until we get to the paladin prophecy which yes. is the the book series that we're going to read the first of his yes which um, i think was published fairly recently yeah not too long ago 11 or 12 or something and it's like that. young adult fiction yeah. so um but maybe we can talk a little bit about his writing career when we get to that episode mm-hmm. um so, yeah, that's what's next up for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we are looking forward to uh, talking with you guys about that. And if you have anything uh, to say about Storyville, if you've seen it, if you loved it, if you, uh, hated, if you hated it, it yeah, if you had uh, any other sort of uh, interesting thoughts. There, if you're been, from Louisiana. <laughs> yes, and you want to correct us on all the things, all the ways we're wrong, please do. Uh, yeah, we'll talk to us on Twitter or Facebook or shoot us an email. Um, and, yeah, thank you for joining us again today.
you're enjoying the show and want to join the conversation, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bickeringpeaks, all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter, that's at bickeringpeaks. Or you can head over to iTunes and leave us a review or comment. We'd love to hear from you.